0: Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 16, verses 11 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are a pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir It lies between Kadesh and Bered. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Dear God, we say thank you for this morning. Thank you as we remember and as we have sung together the beauty, the remembrance during this time, especially of you becoming flesh and coming to us. And so we remember that if you, the creator of the universe, the imaginer, Of humanity became human for us, to meet with us and to mediate for us, that you too can continue to meet with us by the power of your Spirit, spoken in your word. Would you speak to us afresh through the truth and the beauty of how you have revealed yourself within history? And may we find hope and comfort in what you have for us today as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, amen, amen. I was pretty tired. I was pretty hungry. I was a little lonely and a little worn out. This was a couple weeks ago. Um, and uh, I decided, you know, I was in the midst of projects and meetings that I was going to run. I forgot to pack my lunch. I was one of those frenzied days. I don't know if you've ever had one of those. where You're just like, oh, I should have packed my lunch. Totally fought, forgot. Um, and I decided I'm going to go to one of these like surrounding restaurants and just grab something real quick. So I went and I got in the line. I got in line, I got about halfway through, it was the lunch rush, realized I didn't have my wallet. Oh, what a great day, you know? And I, didn't sh- I wasn't sure if they took Apple Pay or not, and so I just was like, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to head on back. It's just one of those days. So I came back to the office, went up the stairs, you know, was going a little bit inward, uh, a little frustrated, kind of telling myself, you know what? One of those days, you're just going to muscle through, Gabe. It's going to be all right. And of course, if you know anything about me, if you know me personally, I don't hide the way I'm feeling, like... Uh, it's hard. It's just the way I'm wired. Like, what's going on in my heart will show up on this very expressive face. Uh, <coughs> and sure enough, I come up the stairs, and there's Pastor Ben Beasley, and I clearly look worn out. And he goes, "Hey, what's up?" And I was like, "Oh, nothing," you know. And uh, I started to detail out how it was very quick, of course. You know, "Hey, I went to this restaurant, didn't have my wallet, but no big deal. I'm going to step into this meeting." And Ben's like, "Oh man, I can go get you something." And I was like, "No, I'm fine." And I laughed it off. And you know, just, ha, 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 you know? <laughs> <clears throat> and Ben knows me well enough to know that that's, like, my coping mechanism, like, my whole life. It's like, we'll laugh about it, even though it hurts. Ha, 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 you know, it's like, <clears throat> and he goes, no, man, let me go get you something. I was like, no, it's okay, I'll be fine. But he wouldn't take no for an answer. And so he went, he got me a sandwich, he paid for it, bless his heart, and he went and grabbed it, and he brought it back and gave it to me during my next meeting look at that (laughs) now I really had to take a nap that afternoon but no but in all seriousness if you know what that sandwich is you are blessed and highly favored this is a phenomenal sandwich from one of our local restaurants uh downtown and I gotta be honest I ate it and I got through most of my day and I had no idea how much that meant to me I actually told him it's from Mildred's great question you know (laughs) I was going to try not to do product placement and show favoritism, but Abby wouldn't let me do it. So, no, I appreciate it. They, they do good work well done. They should be praised for it. Um, and I told Ben with, like, tears in my eyes the next day, I was like, man, thank you. Like, I had no idea how much that meant to me, that he saw me, and he wouldn't let me point him away. He saw me, and he met me. And so, thank you, Pastor Ben Beasley for being a good pastor to me. Yeah. <laughs> we have a really great team here at the downtown campus, and I'm just I'm grateful to serve alongside um, these amazing folks. And through that snort short snippet, um, some of you are like, why are you telling this story? Is this a Gabe's therapy session? No, the reason I share that short snippet and the simplicity of it in many ways as well is that every single person in here, we all want to be seen, every single one of us. We want someone to see us in our pain. Even though we want to cover it up sometimes, we really want someone to break through even what we try to cover up. We want to be seen in our accomplishments so that people give us encouragement and even affirmation in our accomplishment. We want others to see our humanity and acknowledge that and affirm that we are made in the image of God. So we all want to be seen, but the difficult reality, especially around Christmas, especially around Christmas, is that so many of us can feel even more overlooked when we all want to be seen. There's something about this holiday. Now, I've got a beef with Hallmark movies, love the institution, it's an important Kansas City Hallmark, you know, framework and stuff, provides a lot of great jobs. But Hallmark movies, uh, I have, <laughs> I, you know, a lot of people love them. You are so great, so, uh, <laughs> but for me, They're not my thing, okay? And part of it is, is like the story is so predictable, and it creates this picture of what love and romance looks like. It's always a lawyer, you know, and there's always a person from the big city, and they meet in the small town, and then they hate each other, and then they love each other. It's like, whoa, and they get engaged when? Christmas Eve, right? And when you watch that, and if you're a single person, you're like, why isn't that me? And if you're a married person, you've been married for a while, and you're like, what happened to us? You know? I mean, there's just something about that move, those kinds of movies that tend to cultivate discontent or disillusionment. <laughs> I love my wife. We have a great marriage. All the things <laughs> that needs to be said. It's very true. But. Or, I mean, you just walk around, and there's posters everywhere or commercials everywhere of, like, families around a tree. And if you're wrestling with infertility, you're like, what in the world? If you, you, you see all these pictures of, like, people going out for happy hour doing white elephant gifts, right? And if you're struggling with loneliness, you're thinking, what's wrong with me? And even if you have a spouse, you have children, you have great friends, psychologists note that our expectations skyrocket this time of year, and we place those on those who are closest to us. So even if it's good, we walk away discouraged and disillusioned, and we say, man, it should be better than this. Even though it's good, I feel like it should be better, or I feel like I should be more content. What's wrong with me? So even though we all want to be seen, around this time of year, we all feel so to at least a degree, overlooked. And so here's what's so beautiful. Today, we're going to come to a passage that's really hope, a word of hope to the overlooked, to the ignored, or the discouraged. We're going to continue through our series. We're looking at the names of God this Christmas season. And I want you to ask yourself, and just sit in this, when was the last time you felt overlooked? Maybe you feel invisible today. Well, today we're going to see someone who felt overlooked. Someone who was utterly overlooked in her culture and her dynamic. And yet, God saw her. She felt overlooked, but God saw her. And out of her encounter, she gave God a name. Interesting fun fact. She is both the first and the only human being to give God a name. And God holds on to it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it in Scripture. And so today... We're going to see in this name of who God is, one of the most powerful comforts to combat some of our deepest loneliness and discouragement. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, Genesis chapter 16, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and then turn to chapter 16. Here's what verse one reads. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Okay, so right out the gate, we get an introduction to the three characters in this story. We have Sarai, Abram, and an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So Sarai, her name is later changed to Sarah, and you're like, oh, that makes sense. Uh, Abram, later, his name is extended or changed to Abraham. But make no confusion here. The main character of this story is neither of them, It's Hagar, this Egyptian servant, this Egyptian slave. Now, we know that Hagar is from Egypt, and where Hagar intersects with Abram and Sarai was probably earlier in the book of Genesis. Abram and Sarai, there was a famine in the land, and they went down to Egypt to get some resources There's a whole lot of funky stuff that happens in Egypt. I'm not going to like relay that whole story, but long story short, the Egyptians give Abram and Sarai some presents, some gifts, more than likely some servants were amidst that or they bought some servants in their time down in Egypt. More than likely, that is the time that Hagar, the Egyptian slave, joined their ranks. And we don't know a lot about Hagar. We don't know how old she was. We don't know when or how she became enslaved But we do know that in Egypt, at least when she was enslaved in Egypt, she was surrounded by her culture, she was surrounded by her language. She could navigate the dynamics. Maybe, just maybe, she could still go and visit her family or connect with those who were friends of hers in different dynamics. But after the famine is over, Abram and Sarai, they go back to Canaan. They leave Egypt. And just imagine this for Hagar. We know she's not old, we know that she's younger, she leaves her family she leaves her culture to a place that does not speak her language imagine how overlooked invisible she must have felt just in that geographical transition but things are about to get a lot worse okay so sarai tells abram that he that she wants him to marry her servant okay so She's going to be told by her master's husband, or she's going to be told by her master that she has to marry her master's husband. This is going to get real funky real quick. Look with me, chapter 16, verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go unto my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, listen. Listen. There is a whole bunch of wrong going on in this one verse. There's a whole bunch of pain just screaming out of this verse. For one, one, we could look at Sarai longing for a child to call someone, a child, her own. And yet not having a child to call her own. You see, in this particular culture, if we look specifically at the ancient Near Eastern culture, this is heightened even more than what we may experience today in our culture. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, and a very patriarchal society, the, the highest good that a woman or a wife could bring to the community was a male heir, a child. You didn't just wrestle with infertility in the ancient known world, you were labeled as barren. It was an identity marker that came with a ton of shame and scorn. And so Sarai, year after year, longing to have a child of her own, not only feeling a great sense of discouragement and wrestling within her family, but felt the very shame of the whole community coming down on her. But she had been given hope because God had met with Abram. And Abram comes back to Sarai and says, listen, the creator God found me. And he said he's going to give us a child after years of not having a child. God said he's going to give us one, one of the greatest goods in our cultural context. He's saying God's going to give us a son. But he said we've got to go to a different land. And he's going to give us this land. He's going to make us a people, and it's going to be through us. It's amazing God met with us. And maybe, you know, Sarah, she didn't talk to God. She, she knew that only her husband, Abram, had talked to God. So she sees the glistening in his eyes. She sees him alive with fire, and she, she has hope. That maybe, just maybe, this promise of this God is going to come true. And finally, her deepest desires and dreams, her our very identity would be redeemed in her cultural context. But where we meet them in Genesis 16 is 10 years after that promise. No child. 120 months of disappointment. And now she's 75 years old. Any sort of imagination of having a child feels like a pipe dream. And so in desperation, maybe in confusion, thinking that God would maybe still uphold his promise but is going to uphold it in a different way, not including her, she takes matters into her own hands. And she gives her husband, Abram, Her servant Hagar. Now you need to understand, and this is not to justify this, but to once again, we need to enter into the text into its context. In the ancient known world, the ancient Near Eastern world, this was actually a pretty common practice, an ancient form of surrogacy. What they would do is if you had a female servant and you were unable to have children, you would give your servant to your husband and then the children that that servant would have would actually be considered the wives' true children. So they would no longer be the, s- the children of the servant, but they would be tr- servants' uh, children of the, of the servant who is given to the husband. Now, I say all of that because it's uh, not to endorse it, Just because we find something in Scripture when it's describing a certain cultural context doesn't mean that God's like, hooray. God is not celebrating this practice. Actually, when you look across the pages of Genesis, God does not support polygamy, which is multiple spouses, nor polyamory, which is multiple partners outside of a particular covenant or commitment. Every time, this is a very Jewish way. Actually, every time you see polygamy show up in Genesis, it leads to chaos. Every time. It's a very Jewish way about going saying, this isn't a good idea. You don't want to believe me? I'm just going to tell you story after story after. Do you want that? You're going to choose that. Don't do that. Very Jewish way of just saying, you know, I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to show it, okay? So don't go looking to this as like a great example to model your life after, where instead to see brokenness and pain and heartache and also as an aside this is a good example that even though something is really common in a certain cultural context maybe even celebrated in a cultural context it doesn't necessarily mean you're good this was celebrated it was common in that cultural context this is just what people do to fulfill their deepest needs and their cultural identity and it leads to brokenness upon brokenness Beware, just because it's culturally celebrated doesn't mean it's actually genuinely good. Okay, back to the story. Now, in the midst of all of this, as this is beginning to play out, things begu- be quickly begin to unravel. As, as, as <laughs> Sarai gives Hagar to Abe or tells him of this option, Abe really screws up. She's like, hey, why don't you you take my servant? You know what Abe could have said? Hey, I talked with God, and he promised that it's going to come between us. We don't have to do this. We just have to continue to trust him. But Abe doesn't. He just kind of creepily goes along with marrying Hagar, which is not a great look for Abe. Look with me, verses 3 through 4. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And she conceived. It should have never been this way. I mean, Hagar was put in an absolutely impossible situation. Imagine this, okay? Old guy is told by his older wife, you know his old wife hey that couldn't have children why don't you take a younger wife and get pregnant and have a child so old guy marries new young wife gets her preggers on the night of the wedding basically and uh, delivers the child that they both had always wanted how do you think that's going to go that does not sa- doesn't that sound like the makeup of like a soap opera dynamic i mean of course there's going to be jealousy there's going to be rage there's going to be anger And everything begins to unravel. I mean, Hagar didn't ask to do this. She didn't ask to be married to Abraham, but Sarai commanded it. She didn't ask to get pregnant, but this is what Abram and Sarai wanted. And so there she is, pregnant and married to Abram, this older dude, as a younger woman. Very, very weird. And Sarah then becomes ticked, enraged. And then she goes and talks to Abe, and she's like, do you see what she's doing? She's she's full of contempt towards me because she could bear a child, and I couldn't bear a child. And I love the way that the New Living Translation captures this. Look with me at chapter 16, verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Now, great opportunity, Abe. Okay. Here's a great opportunity. Is he going to show up and actually be a peacemaker in this space? Is he going to now cultivate now a unity and a conversation between his two wives? Interestingly enough, in the text, there was a common word used for someone who is purely a surrogate, often called a concubine, which is a really intense word, transparently, to say out loud. Um, but they, And they would be this surrogate role, but instead the text uses the same word, wife, for Hagar, that it uses for Sarai, communicating equality of status. So there is this dynamic that's taking place more than just surrogacy. He had the opportunity to cultivate peace. He had the opportunity to stand up for his new wife and to stand up for his child. What does Abe do? Nothing. Look with me, chapter 16, verse 6, we read, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is an extraordinary injustice. I mean, come on, Abe. Imagine just how overlooked Hagar must have felt in this moment. I mean, she did everything. She, be, she was enslaved in Egypt. At least she was around her culture. She could speak her language and navigate dynamics. Then she moves to a foreign land. She moves to this foreign land seeking to serve her master and her master's husband. And then in the midst of that, they can't have children. So Sarai says, you're going to marry my husband and you're going to bear a child for me. So she does it. Then she actually does what they said they wanted to happen and it happens. And then she gets mistreated and harshly abused you imagine that scenario i've done everything you wanted and now you're taking it out on me and so what does she do she can't take it any longer every day she's experiencing physical emotional psychological abuse and so she runs for home the text says she goes along the path to Shur. that is the road back to egypt And frankly, listen, it's always hard to be a single mom. I grew up in a household with a single mom. it's, It's always hard. But in this cultural context and as a runaway slave, this is a death sentence. She's in the middle of the desert without the appropriate resources as a single mom runaway slave. This is the picture of utter desperation. She would rather die than stay where she was. That's how bad it was. And this is from someone who is supposedly, Abe, a friend of God. And Sarai, the matriarch of the people of God. Which is a reminder that God's grace surpasses even the worst of injustices. And makes room for each and every one of us. Now we come to the text that was read for us at that part in the story. And Hagar is more alone than she has ever been. More overlooked than she's ever been. Felt, And some of you, you may really resonate with where Hagar is in this story. When everybody's going about their business, when everybody's going about their particular duties and their roles, their responsibilities, where's God in all this? What's he doing? How is he caring for the vulnerable? Well, God wants us to know that he, his, he has his eyes right on Hagar. And he meets her. In one of the most vulnerable times of her life. Look with me. Chapter 16, verse 7. We read, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. We said the way to shore is the way back to Egypt. That is a hyperlink to point us back to saying, oh, she's running home and she's there by the spring. And I want you just to just imagine what she's feeling in this moment. Dehydrated maybe finally just getting a drink and just getting a drink long enough to look out into the desert wasteland and to begin to ask, is this it? Is this the end of my life? She wraps her arms around her stomach thinking about the child that's within her, wondering if she can ever give him anything good, anything worthwhile. All the questions running through a frantic mother's mind, feeling isolated, alone, overlooked, and then suddenly she sees someone Now, you need to understand, as a woman who's pregnant, who's a runaway slave at a well, at first, that is not a feeling of comfort. Who is this someone? And then she discerns it's a man. Coming closer and closer. A very vulnerable position to be in, in the middle of the wilderness. But as he comes closer, she recognizes that he looks different than anyone she's ever seen before. There's something about him. Now, the text says that the person who approaches Hagar is the angel of the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, uh, when you look across, especially the Genesis account or in other places where the angel of the Lord appears, um, the angel of the Lord isn't just like another one of the myriad of angels that God can call upon. There's something really unique about this particular title, the angel of the Lord. In many ways, most scholars agree that in some senses that this is actually God himself coming. And even theologians who wrestle with the triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit look at the angel of the Lord as a representation of the pre-incarnate, pre infleshed Christ, Jesus, coming here. And this is the first time he shows up in the Genesis narrative. And where does he show up? Hagar! I have a lot of different frameworks on why he should have showed up to Abe. I have a lot of different frameworks as to why he should have showed up to Sarai. But instead, he shows up to Hagar. Which doesn't that just speak to the beauty of our God? That later, what Jesus describes as the least of these is the one that he first appears in this particular way. The outcast, the overlooked. That's when God decides to show up. When there seems like there's nothing left. How does he show up? He shows up with questions, not making demands. And he calls her by name, Hagar. She doesn't know him. How does he know her name, Hagar? Which I love, Bruce Walkie, he's an Old Testament uh, theologian and expert. He says, this is the only known instance in ancient Near Eastern literature where the deity addresses a woman by name, not just within scripture, When you assess it against all known ancient Near Eastern literature, the only time, if the angel of the Lord is truly God himself come, and actually the pre-incarnate Christ come, this is the only example where a deity, a God, addresses a woman by name. What an elevation of her dignity. That's who our God is. Even in the midst of all this injustice that was carried out by human beings, not by God. But in the midst of all of this, we see God elevating and dignifying her and meeting her where she is. And he's like, where are you coming from? And where are you going? This isn't a lack of knowledge. This is an invitation to intimacy. It's through conversation that we feel close to one another. It's through those spaces of sharing our experience that we feel tethered to one another. This is an invitation for her to feel known. Now, in the midst of all of this, the next thing that the angel of the Lord says, it rocks me to the core. I'm just going to say this outright. This is a really difficult thing. He says something that I, frankly, cannot fathom. He looks at Hagar, and he tells her to go back. Back to Abram, back to Sarai, back to that extraordinarily difficult situation. There's a part of me (laughs) that hates that part of the story. Can I just be transparent? And, And I can tell you, you know, once again, from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, that's probably her best chance of survival is to go back transparently. But still, it turns my stomach. I'm not excited about where that story goes. And this is what I appreciate is because there are moments where God allows us to stay in suffering. We spend some time in the book of James discerning and seeing that, doesn't it? Sometimes we don't understand it and I can't give you pat and easy answers. That's not, this isn't the place for that. But sometimes God does allow us to stay in suffering. But I also wanna say that this text is not prescriptive. That means this is not now the ultimate template as to how you are to respond to every abusive situation. God is not commanding out of this text, if you are in an abusive situation, that you must go back into it. That's not what this text is doing. It is a descriptive text. It is describing a a once-in-a-moment situation for Hagar, not in every situation for the follower of Jesus on how to respond to abuse. Does that make sense? So I don't want us to misread and be like, oh, you know, that happened to Hagar. That's exactly what God's commanding me to do. Wait, wait, wait. This is a narrative, and it does reveal us the unchanging character of God, but it doesn't always dictate the unchanging rules for our lives. But there is no way around it. God, who is utterly compassionate, who reveals himself as loving, who sent his own son to die for us, actually commands her to go back to a very difficult situation. And she's speechless. There's no sugarcoating it for Hagar. Actually, if you look in verses 9, 10, and 11, there's an interesting dynamic that happens in the narrative. It says, the angel of the Lord says, and then he says what he says. The angel of the Lord says, and then he says what he says. The angel of the Lord says, and then he says. Listen, when you're writing dialogue, when you're copying that, you don't keep reintroducing the person who's talking. You just let the dialogue stream out. Instead, this is a narrative a lot of commentators have noticed this anyway, and, I, and I'm with them. This makes the most sense, even as I've compared other narratives, even within Genesis. This is a narrative tool to remind us that Hagar is basically speechless at what the angel of the Lord has just told her to say. The angel Lord speaks, she's still silent. The angel Lord speaks, what's the dialog, dialogical response? Silence. The angel Lord speaks, she's dumbfounded. I don't blame her. And she doesn't speak until she finally hears the promise. God says, I will take care of your son. How does does he know that she has a son? She never told him. Hmm? I will take care of your son. I will make him great. I will make him a mighty nation. He will be, yes, a donkey of a man, a wild guy. But I'm going to take care of him. Then she speaks. What's fascinating to me, and I think the scriptures just reveal the heart of a mom. The angel names her son Ishmael, which means God hears. He's heard you. He's seen you in your plight. And everything changes. Not her circumstances, but her outlook. As a mom wrestling through this. Her circumstances will not be easy, but knowing that her son will be cared for, that God's gonna take care of her son, she's willing to go through anything. That's the heart of a mom longing for her son to be cared for. And so she goes, she returns. She left into the wilderness, overlooked, invisible, ignored, abused, and mistreated. But now she returns, having been seen by God. Having experienced the promises of God. And her response is what? Look with me, chapter 6, verse 13. And I think the NIV captures this best, this particular translation. It reads She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And she returns. And it's not easy. It's not like zippity doo da, zippity day. No, no. There's no bird blue birds. You know? It's still probably quite traumatic and intense. But you know what happens? Her son grows up, and he becomes a mighty nation. God fulfills his promise to her. He upholds what he spoke to her. She saw the God who saw her and her plight, and she held on to his promise. And God fulfilled it. And it changed everything for her. And isn't it ironic or just fascinating that here we are thousands of years later, and millions upon millions of people know her name, Hagar. And we get to see what she thought no one saw. And God now uses her story and what he promised and therefore fulfilled through her as a word of encouragement to countless people who feel overlooked as a reminder that he sees them so that we too can say, you are the God who sees me. So here's the deal. In the midst of this brilliant, brilliant True historical moment, also brilliantly recorded here in Genesis for us. Here's what I want us to see. And I want you to take away from the name of God that's on display here. It's this. God sees you. He sees you. Always. Every part of you. There's no part where God's like clocking out and like, oh, what happened? You know, hey. Um, That was on my break, bro. Sorry, I missed that. Um, No. God sees you. No matter whether you're struggling along his path or you're lost along your own. He sees you. There's no part of your life that is so scandalous that he turns a blind eye. He's with you and he sees you in every bit of it. That's who our God is. He sees you. Do you believe that? (laughs) That's who our God is. And what Hagar is surprised by we, as God's people, should come to expect. You see, this is not just a one-off experience of a changing God. Sure, we don't take the specific command to Hagar to now be a specific command to us, but what we can see is the unchanging God on display here. We can see that this is a story that is captured for God's people so that we can see God more clearly and have more hope more regularly. And listen, if God saw Hagar, one of the most invisible, overlooked in her cultural situation, then he sees you. That's the point. If he sees Hagar, he sees you. He sees me. And so I want to make this real. Think about spaces in your life where you might feel overlooked. Maybe here today, you're wrestling through you're a married couple, and you've been thinking and asking these questions. You're wrestling through infertility. You long for children. That's something that you've discussed together, and it's been an arduous journey. That was a, sto- that was a bit of alleys in my journey for a while. I want you to know that God sees you. Maybe you're here today, and you have some enduring physical pain. That is not in any way, shape, or form downplay. You have an enduring physical pain, and you constantly are trying to hide it because you don't want people to have any number of perceptions of you, and so you feel like you're suffering alone in quietness, in isolation. I want you to know God sees you. Maybe you're here and you feel overlooked because of your cultural background, your ethnicity, your race, your orientation. Your orientation. Maybe you feel alone because you just moved to Kansas City and you're longing for community and you haven't found it. Or maybe you're a newlywed and you don't know how to navigate your marriage. Or you have a new kid and you don't know how to be a good parent. You have all these questions. I want you to know that God sees you. If you're here today and you've got a prison record because of certain decisions you made in your past and you constantly feel ostracized and finding a new job has felt endlessly difficult, I want you to know that God sees you. In all of these contexts, no matter your story, God sees you. And I want to make this a little more personal. I want you to think specifically of your life. There is beauty and power in naming where you feel overlooked, where you're coming from and where you're going. So I want you to ask yourself, what part of your life feels overlooked by God? Where do you feel abandoned? Where do you feel invisible? Where do you feel abused? Feelings are important. Feelings are different from facts, but feelings are helpful because they reveal what we believe or they reveal what we want, but they're different from facts. Facts are a revelation of what's true no matter how we feel. And what we see here is that Hagar felt overlooked. But the fact is, God saw her. But feelings are helpful. What part of your life feels overlooked by God? And where do we go with these feelings this holiday season? Here's where we go. When you feel overlooked, look to the God who sees you. I want to repeat this. If God saw Hagar, then he sees you. And what Hagar was surprised by, we should come to expect. Once again, Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, in the NIV, she reads, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that was the turning point for her and her journey. Are you looking to the one who sees you? And I don't know why, but I'm just one of those real tactile people, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to think to that question, what part of your life feels overlooked by God? And I want you to fill in this blank. You can write it in your formed life journal if you've got that with you. You can write it in your Bible. You can type it in your phone or a scrap piece of paper you have somewhere. Fill in the blank. Name what you feel like is overlooked by God and put the fact here. God sees me in my depression. God sees me in my grief. God sees me in my heartache. God sees me in my joblessness. God sees me... In my loneliness, what is that for you? Because God sees, write it out, because it's powerful for us to see that truth proclaimed back over our lives. If God really sees every part of us at all times, then he sees what you feel is overlooked. And this is really crucial for us to come to terms with, because when you trust God sees you, you can rest in his work for you. If you don't trust that God sees you, you're going to be restless. That's the way Sarah was. She abused her power to get what she wanted, right? Abram, he was paralyzed (laughs) when he didn't think that God was working. So he didn't act when he should have. Hagar ran away until she trusted that God was working for her and through her. And when we trust that God sees us, he cultivates a, a calm confidence. It doesn't always feel like the absence of anxiety. You know, sometimes we, we talk in, in terms of absolutes that are unhelpful to our true human experience. Sometimes we can have ang- a little bit of anxiety and a calm confidence at the same time. <laughs> we continue to surrender and God's working with what he's given us where we are. But a calm confidence to step into the trials, to walk into the path that he's called us to, even when we're unsure how it all worked out, but a calm confidence that he's got us. His ways may not be our ways. It may not be in our timing. You know, Isaiah, the prophet, wisely said that God's thoughts are above ours and his ways are not our ways. And sometimes it may be as simple as a sandwich <laughs> to taste his goodness. I did that on purpose. Yeah, it's really... <laughs> sometimes it's as simple as a sandwich if we have the eyes to see. And then other times... It's utterly mind-blowing. I mean, who would have thought that when God saw the brokenness of his world, his plan from eternity past was that he would send an angel to another young woman around this time in the first century. And he would say, you are pregnant, but it's not from your husband. And so she too would be scandalized in the first century. When God showed up, it wrecked her life. Just want you to know, if you're asking for God to show up, sometimes it's like, why is this so hard? Well, sometimes God wrecks it before he makes it better. Just saying, just expectation setting's important. <laughs> he wrecked her life in many ways. That scandal followed her the rest of her life. Oh, you're the one who had a child out of wedlock. Huh? And in a culture where that was more than taboo, but you could get stoned for that, feel the weight. And this angel also named this child in the same way that the angel of the Lord named Hagar's child. And his name would be Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. But also everyone's hand would be against him in the same way that every hand was against Ishmael, but through his death would bring redemption. Do you see the mirroring? And you've got to believe that when Mary was face-to-face with this angel, a good Jewish woman steeped in Jewish culture, she knew Hagar's story. And she knew that God saw her. And God called her highly favored and blessed. And she held on that God saw her and would carry her through. And she believed, too, that the promise of her son would be fulfilled. Do you see the mirror? God has patterns in the ways that he works. It's not always the same, but he often has patterns. And it's often very messy, but it's also very beautiful. If Christmas teaches us anything, if Advent teaches us anything, it's that God sees us. He sees you. And if God is really called the God who sees me, it's because he actually does. Always. May we believe that. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you see us. Oh, God. I don't feel, I, sometimes I get nervous about what you see when you see me. <laughs> but that's because I, I doubt your goodness and I doubt your grace. And so I pray, Lord, that in the midst of this, that this message for each and every one of us and knowing that you see us, that we would rest upon your grace. That when you look at us, may we have the confidence that you look at us through Christ when we've embraced him. That his sufficient death on the cross has paid for the wages of our sin and made a way of utter reconciliation such that when you see us, we can know without a doubt that you see us to pursue our good. May we trust in that. May we lean into you. May we believe that you see us in the spots that we don't want you to see us. May we believe that you see us when we feel so much doubt that you actually see us. And may that comfort us to our core and may we, that comfort actually lead to trust in you and how you're working for us. And may we have the patience and the hope to continue to walk through the path that you've called us to walk that has been tread by so many before us, whether it be Hagar or whether it be Mary and whether it be our very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We trust you. Give us that calm confidence. Give us that rest. And may we then be agents to see others as you have seen us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And so we come to the Lord's Supper, where we remember Jesus Christ, to the Apostle Paul in Galatians, writes that at just the right.